Hello and welcome to Manga Explaining. Listen to me. It's our occasional interview format podcast where we on the Manga Explaining team interview folks working in and around the manga industry. My name is Christopher Woodrow Butcher and I'm here with my co-host Deb Aoki. This week we're interviewing a real live mangaka, a comics creator who has worked in Japan and North America and in Spain and whose work can be read in many languages around the world. His name is Ken Nimura and he joins Deb and I in this call from his home in Tokyo, Japan. Ken, please introduce yourself. Hi, so I'm Ken Nimura. I'm a cartoonist and illustrator. In the States, I've published The uh, IQ of Giants with Joe Kelly. Might have maybe already seen Henshin that came out through Image. My most recent book is called Never Open It and came out through EM Press. That's awesome. I've actually known Ken for a really long time from meeting him at the Kaigai Manga Festa, which is the big overseas Tokyo comics event that was maybe the first of its kind, where Ken was selling lots of doujinshi and self-published work after he had done, maybe during while you were doing I Kill Giants? Right after that, I think. So I had already probably moved to Japan, Mm -hmm. I think. So I put out I Kill Giants in a couple of years past, moved to Japan, and probably that was like the the year after that I met you. When did you move to Japan? Uh, So 2011. So I think I met you then maybe at the first Kaga Manga Festival, which is maybe 2013, something like that. Mm. I remember going in August 2013 and accidentally tripping over the people setting up Kaga Manga Festival. And they're like, you should come, you should come. And it was, yeah, it was 2014, maybe it was the first one. So that's really interesting that we've, we've known each other such a long time, almost, almost a decade. Yeah. <laughs> the reason we wanted to ask you today to be a part of this, other than we both, Deb and I, really like your work, is we've been doing more interviews with people who work in and around manga, and you have such an interesting history with comics and manga. Your background is both Spanish and Japanese. Is that that's yeah, accurate? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you've been working, making comics for your whole life, but with Henshin, many of those stories appeared as part of the Hibana like online manga magazine published by Shogakukan? Well, that was a magazine before, so Ikki. Oh, was it, oh, so it was the Ikki online, and then it became yeah. Hibana. Oh, okay. Yeah. I actually wanted to start there, because I think that's where most of the people who've tuned in for sort of manga information might want to start as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to be a Spanish-Japanese person who was published in a Japanese manga magazine in, in Japan, or in, in an online Japanese manga magazine? Right, so... I just to give you like a little bit of like context, I grew up in Spain. I started publishing in Spain, mainly short stories. I met Joe Kelly at a convention in Spain. He told me I have this script. Uh, maybe you could be interested. I was super interested. And I took, I think it was like something like two years after graduating from art school to work on that. I was like, mm, maybe, I mean, I should be getting a job, a real job, <laughs> but I'm going to give a try doing comics, which is the one thing I, I really liked doing. And I was like, I'm going to give it a try and we'll see what happens. Mm. We put that comic out in the States initially, which was funny because I had never really thought about like, being in Europe, working for the States was never a thing for me. And that was I Killed Giants, right? Yeah. And it was published exactly. as issues and then collected by Image Comics? Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Which was, you know, uh, an amazing experience and so much fun, especially because like doing it through image, they really let you do a little bit what you want. Mm. They're really creator oriented because I have a, I've been working for a long time doing scenes, issues and, and stuff. You know, I really like doing the whole process from script to like the final design, product design, you could say. Mm-hmm. And image is a place that really allows you to do that. And after that, 
I, I got to a point where I was like, I would really like to, of course, collaborating with other people, but I would like to make my own stories. Mm-hmm. But like, because I had more of a, like an art background, honestly, I wasn't very good. I mean, I'm still great, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't even, <laughs> I was really bad at writing. Ah, okay. And I was like, I really need to like get good at this. And so the thing was in Japan, as you both know, and you know, probably the listeners know too, like, you know, there's this like big culture of like having an editor, the Henshisha or Tanto, mm-hmm. working with the artist and being sort of mm-hmm. i think the equivalent would be maybe script doctor yeah okay send them an idea and they're like okay yeah but how about telling it this other way or have you considered this other angle and they're really hands on people are surprised by how collaborative the process is between japanese mangaka and their editors and it doesn't necessarily get talked about a lot but i mean you're coming up with like raw ideas and they're helping you massage them at that point like turn them into a different story you know it's a collaborative work so it really depends on who you you know what kind of editor you're talking to so Mm. and there are really lots of ways that you know that collaboration could happen because like you could go with an idea and they could be like no no no, we have we know what we want from you how about this other thing (laughs) or you know you can maybe find somebody who'd be like yeah whatever you do you want to do let's try to make it better some of them they're going to be really hands off there and they're like no the ideas belong to the authors i'm just here to facilitate that Mm. you know the work so so it's really it's really different as a job depending on the person but like certainly what's what makes a difference from the way i've seen in in western markets especially europe and, and the states that relation between like publisher well editor and author is that they do work on on the story to the point where once the story is locked and they they're certain that they're they like it they barely say anything about the art mm. the art they're like it's yours have fun i mean unless you really do something weird but <laughs> otherwise they'll never say anything however on the writing stage that's a point where it can take it will take as long as it needs to take basically mm-hmm. and for the writing stage too we think of writing as just writing but when you're talking about the writing stage you're also talking about thumbnails where like the act of writing the story is sort of indivisible from laying out the story on the page. Yeah, and that's the other thing that's very, for example, like when I started working here, I wasn't used to working that way mm. at all. So it took me, because it's kind of, I guess it's like on the one hand, it's more natural to comics because like you're already envisioning what it's going to look like on the page mm-hmm. and the pacing and everything. But at the same time, that means it's more work because you have to have extra mm push to go and see like how does this like pace and where are the characters placed and what's the acting while if you were doing just like a literary i mean written script it's just basically what's happening who talks what do they say Mm -hmm. so it's more complex but i think now that i'm used to working that way i find it much more natural to like comics because like especially people like me i guess like many artists we come from background which might be more visual than Mm -hmm word based and so for us it's very helpful being able to rely on pictures because that's what we've been doing all our life and you know and there's also like that beauty like honestly something that i find really beautiful about like comic which is like that mixture between words and images and how they interplay and how at the end of the day it's not like two separate things so yes it's very helpful where maybe when maybe you don't have the words to put something on a page but you have the image and you know that's already helping you get the idea out 
that's so different than I think a lot of people think about how comics are made in North America because those roles tend to be separate people or many mm. different people even. And editors tend not to be involved in that way in a lot of story editing kind of ways. Not always, obviously, but <laughs> no, it's really great to hear. So you were just talking about, before I interrupted, I'm sorry, you were just talking about after you'd completed Eichel Giants and moved to Japan, wanting to work in that system. Right. And then it, just by chance, it was at a Barcelona a manga convention that I met Tayo Matsumoto. Mm. He was a guest too. I was a guest. And then suddenly, I mean, suddenly, how do I say, level-wise, where it's another universe. Mm. But we were kind of like put in the same room, let's say. And so I was able to like talk to him and, you know, ask so many questions that I, I wanted to ask. And then through him, I met Hideki Yegami. He's a, I went to Japan the year after, probably. He was like, hey, let's go have a drink. He introduced me to the publisher, chief editor, I guess, of the magazine. So Ikki magazine, where Taiyo Matsumoto was publishing at the time. And then in parallel, which is funny now that I think of it, I also met STM, ah, so yeah. another mangaka. And she started working for Ikki too. Hmm. And she was like, let me introduce you to my editor in, at Ikki, who is Yumetaro Toyoda. And that both things happened while while I was wasn't I mean while I was living abroad still, mm. but then I will I talked to Yumetaro San and he was like yeah if you I've, I've seen like giants I like it if you want to try doing something here how about I mean why not and and I was like perfect I mean that's exactly one thing I've been looking for like one chance to work here and then we're talking about like barely you know ten years ago but then ten years ago it felt as if I mean, it wasn't, it didn't feel, it was really like your reality. Like if you were working in comics, you would have to have these meetings with your editor. And therefore that kind of meant you would have to be in Tokyo. Yeah. That was it. Like there was no way to make them like through Skype or anything. Because like, it's a very like, I don't know, paper-based society and also industry. And so I was like, well, you know, why not moving to Japan? Uh, that'd be, that'd be like a fun challenge. Like mm. I go there, I... Because, you know, I had never really lived here. So I was like, certainly, why not? While being able to work on comics. And so that was the start of something that began with Spicy Tuna, that we're going to be talking about, I guess. And somehow ended, I mean, or ended, the, the end result was Henshin. Mm, that's really interesting. I want to talk about Henshin in particular, because you've got a story, I think it's the third story in the book, about the process of submitting and working with your editor and having your stories continuously shot down by duplicating something else or not really working or whatnot. What was that process like for you as a creator trying to get your work published in those early days? Was it? It's a really funny short story, but I could see how you could look at it and feel like it was also very disheartening. How did you feel about it? That was, yeah, that was a cathartic way of like, you know, <laughs> coming up, you know, like, like, I don't know, processing, you know, that like way of working. It's, it's very tiring. It was very tiring. I don't mean it in a bad way, but it was, it's really like energy consuming because like you're coming up with ideas and mm, I mean, of course, from the point of view of the, the editor, they're like, well, I mean, is it good first? Is it interesting? Is it, is it going to sell? Is there anybody, I mean, do you have any way to, to put it out in a way that people are going to be interested in, in it. And so, especially, I would like to believe that maybe if I did that process 
now that'd be easier. I want to believe, but you know, God knows. But you know, back in the day, I knew less than I know now about like you know, I don't know maybe you know, well, storytelling mm-hmm. for sure, but how people read or what people are interested in or marketing even. Like, so if you have an idea, how do you make it more appealing? And so it's like really like a crash course on all of that at once. And so what's really difficult there is that most of these conversations are done over the storyboards. So what that means is that, you know, you come up with an idea, maybe you discuss it with the editor, like, um, could be a story about this, about, about that. They're like, yeah, okay, take, bear in mind this element or this other. And then you go and you do the storyboard. But like in order for you to get there, that means that you've already created, you know, the universe, the you know, the plot, you know, the characters. I mean, you've done all the hard work, and then you go to the meeting, and then maybe they're like, "Oh, this is this is not good." <laughs> and and let me tell you, like most of the times, I would come out of the meeting and being like pissed, and I was like, "Oh my god, like they don't." Under- I mean, I'm I'm, mis- I'm misunderstood. I'm a genius, whatever. Wow. Then, you know, a week passes and you're like, he was actually so right. <laughs> this is not good. So the, I mean, the funny thing about like those meetings was that whenever I went there and I was like, Toyo-san is going to see like, this is my masterpiece. <laughs> Usually it was very bad. He was like, listen, this and this and that don't work. And and they're so good at like being able to see the story as a, as a whole. And so they read it and they're like, okay, okay, we understood but then maybe they come there and they're like, sorry, but like, why does this like character do this here? Because like on this other scene, this other thing happens, or you say this other thing here. And suddenly the whole thing crumbles and you're like, my, the, maybe, you know, the, the overarching idea well, that was bad. Mm. It just doesn't, doesn't work. But they're good at spotting those things, which, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of course. And so, and maybe other times I would go there and be like, oh my God, I think this storyboard is going to suck. And then he was like, okay, this is good. Like, just change this and that. We, we're done. So it got to a point where I really didn't know whether well, I was, what I was doing was any good or not. It was like, I'm just going to do it and then we'll discuss and we'll see. And so that process happened between me arriving to Japan and starting my, I mean, Toyo-san and me deciding that we would do henshin. Mm-hmm. And then that process, because it, it was composed of like short stories, then we had that process every month where I came. I was like, I think the next story would be will be this one. And then wow. it's not like a continuing story. Then we would have to rethink characters and setting and everything from scratch. And so every time that would be like that process, like in in a small, small size, mm-hmm. you could say. So the way the Japanese market works, they ask most of the newcomers to work on short stories before going on to longer ones and it makes sense because it's a really good way of trying things and testing testing basically i actually just read an interview with otomo where Mm. he was lamenting how that wasn't happening very much anymore that they were basically Mm. they would get these incredibly talented like visually amazing young artists and throw them right into serials like right away maybe after like one prize winner so sorry and he was really upset about it it's actually the interview that's coming up in akira art of wall which we've talked a little bit about on the podcast i actually worked on the editing for the english edition which is why i've already read that interview it's really good really good interview with otomo yeah i i think that that's it's a fascinating thing that they were willing to work with you like you know you hear about it it's like rejection you're having a hard time with it but also 
this is an editor who has decided to start working with you without any kind of real business arrangement. They never know if they're ever going to publish anything by you, but they're like, we're going to give you an hour at least of my time every week until we get something that we're going to work because we like your work. That's something that I don't know if you could get an hour of an editor's time in North America right now. Everyone seems so overworked. So I think that that's a fascinating look into that process where you were working with an editor for months before they ever published anything of yours? Really? Wow. No, a year and a half, I would say. Oh, wow. You're absolutely right on the fact that, you know, it's a real luxury being able to like have, let's say like a coach, basically, which is what they are, like somebody helping you hone your skills or directing you and being like, this part worked, this part didn't work, maybe you're more good at these things. There's also like another facet to that thing, which is which is something I, I usually tell my friends, which is like, it's a it's a different point of view in the sense that us creators, we're for the most part freelancers. So mm-hmm. until something's published, we don't get paid. While, for example, editors, they're, I hope they're mostly employees of the company. So regardless of you know, how long it takes, they're going to have their salary every month. So the level of stress that an, an artist has whenever you go to a meeting and something doesn't go the way you, you think is that you're like, oh, shit, that means that maybe I'm going to go another month without getting paid. <laughs> yeah, that's right? real. That's yeah. Real. And so, you know, the, the conversation would be different if, for example, a publisher went and said, like, we're going to give you a monthly salary, go and work on prototypes for, for a story. And whenever it's good we're going to publish it. Mm. I mean, at, at least like my level of stress would be different you know? <laughs> because I'd be like, Oh, no problem. You know, we're going to take two more years to hope to perfect this thing. And, and, you know, it's something that publishers, editors d- aren't aware because like they're on the other side of the fence in a way they're, yeah. they have a salary and they give her granted that people kind of, you know, get by doing something. But on the other, when you're an artist, you're like, unless I get this published, then I might have spent, I don't know, a year and a half working on something that went nowhere. And certainly, you know, the exercise as an exercise where you're like trying things, it's, it's super positive. Mm. But then it's, it's sometimes I, I hear difficult for especially newcomers where at one point they're like, I don't have the means to keep on trying this, for example, because I have to pay a rent and, and then I have to spend time doing a side job and maybe I cannot do both. Yeah. So um, it's, you know, I, I guess like the very romantic idea of like, no, you just like leave everything and just go for it. Yeah. It's easier when it's easier to say when you have a salary, let's say. Mm-hmm. But when you're really in that position, it's, I mean, the question for me sometimes is like, do I create better under stress or relaxed? And I'm not mm-hmm. sure yet. Right. I mean, there are good sides and bad sides to, to both for sure. But the, I guess the, the approach here in Japan is like putting stress on you and being like, how can this person perform mm. under high levels of, of stress? That's kind of like architecture school in a way, right? Because like architecture school, they put you through like heavy deadlines, all-nighters and stuff like that. And they tell you it's to prepare you for life as an architect. <laughs> so I think maybe that's... <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I guess you could see points like in Dragon Ball where you're like so used to doing that, but then you take off the, the braces and, and they're heavy and you're like, oh my God, I'm, you know almighty which is a great thing for sure i mean like for example like having switched now working on western comics because the publishing pace is uh, slower than japan mm. it feels so much more comfortable at that level because i'm mm. like i'm not stressed i i know i'm gonna get there i'm gonna be able to send this, the things on time 
well, in Japan, it's really, I mean, the, the one year I was working on Henshin was pretty tiring because like that would be like monthly deadlines. And then that would mean maybe two weeks for scripts, wow. two weeks for art, and then do it again every, every month. So yeah. uh, when I think of, you know, more, I mean, especially people that maybe publish on Shonen Jump, we do that like not every month, but every week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, mm-hmm. hmm. Before we transfer to never open it, I wanted to ask one more question about Henshin. And it kind of factors into what I think of as I met you through Takeshi, through Takeshi Miyazawa, mm-hmm. who's a friend of mine in Japan. And you had sort of founded a little community of people who were interested in making manga, maybe from like, you know, both Japanese and then Japanese Canadian or Japanese Spanish or from different places. And it also included people like Estem, who was a wonderful, wonderful creator. And Estem makes an appearance in Henshin, for example. There are a number of stories of you sitting around the table with your friends, some of whom are manga comments, some of whom aren't, talking about making manga. And then I, I really think that the it's interesting the sense of community that is in your work and the sort of community that you've built of creators in Japan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it does sound like something that would be very supportive while you're going through these editorial troubles or while you're going through these other publishing troubles like oh absolutely so oh yeah for example like people like Estem, who you know i think she's probably my age but she has so much more experience working for in japan for mm. sure and you know she has a very um, objective way of like looking at things so it's it was it's always she's always being like so supportive and so good at like putting in perspective things. I mean, the same goes for for you, Chris. For example, like whenever I went to you, I'm like, oh my god, this isn't about this me. Isn't <laughs> no, and you were like, uh, well, listen, maybe this and that, and and then I'm like, oh yeah, totally, totally right. So she she's been so good at just helping me to put in context things and helping me see things I was seeing, mm. uh, maybe interactions. Yeah, because like for, for, I mean, the one thing about Tokyo is that there are so many manga and creators mm. here. It's, I mean, it, it's so usual that you go to to have a drink at a bar and then like the person next to you might be a mangaka because there are so yeah. many mangas. Public. I mean, it's not, I mean, if that were abroad, you would be like, oh my God, a comic artist. In Japan, you're like, oh, oh okay, manga Okay, so what where do you publish? <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, the the contradiction there is that no, no, the paradox is that because like everyone has a different de- deadline. They, some people work for monthly, weekly mm-hmm. magazine put, being put out on Mondays, mm-hmm. on Wednesday, whatever. People have so different deadlines that it's actually kind of difficult to get together. Yeah, because you're, you're like, hey, I'm free today, and they're like, no, sorry, deadline on Friday, I cannot. Mm-hmm. And so it really for for the huge number of like mangakas out here it's sometimes difficult to get together. And then, you know, it's also probably like life in the big city and then the way Tokyo works as a, as a city. So, you know, and, and for, for a while, we had like a, like a draw, drawing um, you had like, meeting. Yeah, you had, a, you had a, them at the media. We actually invited some of the Canadians that we came to Tokyo with a couple of times. Yeah. I think even Deb got to go to one of them too. Yeah, and so we did those like every month. I mean, we don't do that anymore, anymore. But you know, it was so super fun because it kind of like set a date for okay. So this day we're gonna get together in the bar and we're gonna just like do some doodles. So <laughs> which is great because it's like going back to really just the the beginning of why most of us are are doing comics, which or which is just fun, mm-hmm. and it's some like a means to communicate with other people. 
And it's basically like the equivalent probably in comics jam, jam session. Yeah, like a jam session, yeah. You get together and then you just like, improvise and have fun and just enjoy it for the sake of, you know, that being fun. And in those meetings, we would also have like friends of friends that some of them were didn't draw, but who cared? Yeah. We were all like drawing together. I mean, I remember remember one of the Kayan Manifestas, we had Juanjo Guarnido, the guy yeah. from uh, Black Sad. And I was like, hey, would you like to come? He came. And, then, and we were just like drinking and, you know, at one point we did whatever exercise and we started just like drawing boobs or something, mm. drawing boobs. Uh, sorry. Um, you know, um, and it is what it shows is. our, yeah. our mental age. And then, but I was like, and then we ha- I had some other friends of mine who didn't even know who he was or, you know, they didn't draw. And I was like, this is so beautiful. It's just like the real, I don't know, selfless act of just like sharing a moment of creation with other people regardless of who who you are if you have any status uh through boobs but who cares but it was so much fun and and it's one of those moments that you know it's i at least for for me they're really valuable because like they they bring you back to the genesis of like you know i'm just doing a drawing because like then i'm going to be able to show it to somebody else and it's going to maybe going to be like a means to share something mm, that's really nice i this is my last question i want to transition into oh no keep going keep going this is fascinating <laughs> no no oh, yeah so you did this beautiful self-published book which is the the Toto story that ended up as never open it or titled in english never open it and it's black white and red and i if i'm i might be misremembering so i apologize but wasn't this part of sort of a gallery or a publishing thing that you were doing with the mangaka Yamamoto, Yamamoto Miki, who also did a black, white, and red story? You were both going to try and do black, white, and red stories and then have it like be part of a gallery or something like that? Like That's the kind of thing that very rarely happens here, but happened in Japan, and it turned into a whole book project for you. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Oh, absolutely. So never open it. Where should I begin? Yeah. So just to give you like a little context like i went to um children book illustration workshop here in tokyo mm. oh. it's different every year that year was run by an american illustrator that's called Steven guarnaccia okay he teaches in the in new york i think and so the exercise was like let's try to do like a children book of your own and so i i've always been fascinated by the story of like Taro, and i tried to make it as a story as a children's book the thing is like I always, I never understood the ending or I never was, I never agreed to, you know, I never agreed with the ending. So I, I tried to rewrite it. And when I showed that, like what they call like a children book dummy, they call it, I showed it to a publisher of children book. They were like, yeah, this is nice. I mean, we like it, but we cannot publish uh, Aurashi Mataro where the ending is different from the original because then uh, it's just going to confuse the kids. Yeah. And I was like, I totally get it. And so suddenly I was like, well, maybe, maybe if I, because I was like, I cannot really draw the original ending. I really don't agree with it. And so I was like, well, maybe, maybe what I can do is like turn this into a comic Mm -hmm. instead. And that's it. Yeah. And I was in touch with Miki Yamamoto, who's a mangaka. I, you know, I've been following for a long time, long time. And we had this idea of like maybe trying to do like a book where, each did like one half. So she did maybe the first half, I did the second half. We were discussing like, could this be like one continuing story, like two separate stories? That kind of evolved 
you know, turned into like an exhibition. We were like, okay, we're going to try to do an exhibition before doing the book. And then I was like, oh, actually, I have been working on Urashimataro for a while. May, I would like to maybe turn these ideas into illustrations and make just illustrations, not even with text. And so we did an exhibition in Tokyo where she did red riding hood mm-hmm. illustrations and I did Urashimataro, both in red and black and white. Mm. Unfortunately, the book didn't happen as we intended. Her project became, um, oh, what's the name? Oh, it's, it's a book that's not in, in, out in the States yet. It's, uh, Kashikokte it's her latest is it book. Ribbon Around a Bomb? I've got it on my shelf. Is that one? No, that's a, it's a newer one. Oh, okay. Not yet translated. Well, we'll figure it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Don't worry, folks. And you're going to love it. It's an amazing book. So hers became that book and mine became Never Open It. And so I decided to finish the, the whole Urashimataro story just as I intended to make it. Mm-hmm. And I put it as a, as a zine in Japan right at the same time the Aikyo Giants movie came out in Japan. So I was like, if the movie's coming out and I'm going to be doing some promotion, why not having something new that I can show people? Mm. So I finished that, which is the doujinshi you have. And then I liked the experience so much that I was like, are there any other Japanese folk tales that I could maybe adapt in the same way, which is like, I'm going to keep the part that I am interested in and then I'm going to try to like reimagine or rework the, the second part, second half. And then, you know, that's when I, after doing some research, found, I mean, remember basically that it was like uh, the crane wife and then the Ikkyu-san story that I then did for, for the book. So you looked for the other stories based on that theme of never open it or what made you choose the other two stories? Right. I mean, there, so Urashimataro, so never open it. I did it. The first story I just did because I, I was like, there's something here that I think I would like to make justice to your characters that appear who on the original have such a sad ending. And I'm like, no, I think I say from the point of view of the, of the narrator, it makes sense maybe to sacrifice those characters in order to tell a story. But if I were the character, I would be very pissed that somebody (laughs) has like said, (laughs) imposed this like fate on me. And I was like, I'm going to try to like rework the story from, from the point of view of the character. So if they really Mm. were there, how would they actually maybe react to what's happening to them? And so I was like, I would like to adapt other stories. And then like for a while, I was like researching because I could be like, uh, and, and I had so many options out there. I was like, maybe I could work on adapting like random Japanese legends, or mm-hmm. I could maybe adapt uh, one, another legend from, I don't know, the Bible and another one from another different tradition. And I had so many combinations, but at the end of the day, when I analyzed, like, what was it exactly that drew me to, like, wanting to rewrite uh, Urashimataro, it was really that aspect of, like, why would characters have to behave the way the narrator wants to? Is there any way to, like, reverse that, like, device, you could say, and then, like, give back the stories to the characters? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, so it's the imposition of, like, that, that... order of like never open it don't do this don't do that that i'm kind of against but not in a, like a teen, <laughs> teen way of like a just revolting but rather questioning like do we not have to open it that or do we have to do as the narrator says and so um, the crane wife has exactly the same narrative device which is like something happens they're like don't do this and of course like do they do that and you know there's a bad ending 
so I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to focus on like Japanese legends that have to do with that idea of the taboo or the, well, yeah, the taboo. I thought it was interesting that because with the crane wife, for example, you really use the red in a really interesting way, in a way that I didn't expect from the book. Like, you know, the, I mean, I don't know if this is spoilery, but basically it, it goes full kaiju at the end. It's like all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one, you know, the good thing is like I did. It's one of those things where never the first story, the Urashimatero story, I did instinctively in a way. I was like, I there is something here that I I don't agree. I'm gonna do something for it. And then the crane wife is a result of like me reflecting on what I did. And I was like, okay, so this is what happened. This is why I did it. Mm. And because I use red, black, and white, I was like, okay, is there any more effective way of using red for for the second story? And that's when I was like, okay. How can we exploit, you know, red as a storytelling device in in the story? So red, of course, you know, it's it's easier if it becomes blood and everything. It's a little bit like what I did for Henshin, where I was like, it's going to be published online, and so it's going to be read mainly by Japanese. But there might be friends of mine that you know may click on the link and go and see it, and they're not going to be able to read it in Japanese. But if I do like mm. nice. <laughs> Nice visuals, which is a fun, stupid way of saying it. But if I, on top of like making sure that the story works, if I manage to do something that visually is attractive, they might get something out of it, even if they don't understand it. And so for the crane wife, it was kind of the same. It was like, can I make something that's visually attractive and, and fun and even especially fun for me to make? And, and that's, you know, kind of what led to that kind of like kaiju like ending. <laughs> mm. I'm curious that you said that this was going to be serialized online. Where was it serialized? I don't. Oh, think I sorry. Uh, no, no, Henshin. Not, not. Oh, Henshin. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I sorry. thought you meant Never Open It. I asked because Never Open It, especially the Crane Wife story, is broken into chapters or chunks that have like title pages or or sort of individual pages. Did you conceive of it originally as one long story, or did you think about serializing it first? Right. So, actually, a good question because I forgot. <laughs> I, 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 I was in talks with a Japanese publisher for a while to maybe make it through them. Mm. But then it, it, at the end, they, they weren't interested in it. So anyway, it's easier sometimes when you have a longer story to break it down into chapters and mm-hmm. just to make each, each one of them interesting enough. And I was also like, you never know how this is going to be published. So if there is any chance to maybe make it into your serialization somehow, it's like it's already done and prepared for that, just in case. But yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the funny thing about that. So when I was talking to the Japanese publisher, you're like, I'm presenting these stories that or every Japanese knows yeah. to them, and I'm gonna try to add something extra, which is like a different ending or a different mm-hmm. way to a different look at those stories. When the publisher were like, you know, we're finding not interested, and then then I was like, I'm gonna finish them anyway. But because I, I was already um, in talks with foreign publisher to put it out, then I was like, well, this is gonna have to be understandable also for foreigners that maybe don't know anything about the original story. Mm-hmm. And so I did like that double process of like making something that I mean, hopefully, if a Japanese reader that knows already the stories, if they read them, hopefully they're gonna find them interesting. I hope. Yeah. And I did you know, some efforts make them understandable, even though you know nothing about, you know, them, the stories or the stakes or anything. I also, I also had the help of many, many friends. Uh, so for example, like Yumeta Toyoda, 
from Iki. He helped me polish one of the stories from the Japanese point of view, you could say. But I also had some foreign friends reading up English versions of these stories and without them knowing anything about the original story, just giving me their advice. They were like, boy, this part feels, which is funny because maybe they're like, this part feels boring. And it's like, well, that funny enough, that part's been there forever. You know, it's from the very beginning, <laughs> but it's like, oh, it's, it's funny that, you know, somebody comes and they're like, listen, this like traditional tale, this part is just like not working for me, which is great. <laughs> right? Yeah. So so I took both advices, so from people that knew the legends, mostly Japanese and people that didn't, and I was like, I'm, I'm just going to take both point of, points of view into account and try to make something mm-hmm. that, regardless of who reads them, you know, would be understandable and engaging, hopefully. I think synthesizing diverse ideas is a really interesting tack for you to take as a creator who's sort of straddling two nationalities as well, where you're like, oh, I'm going to take these parts of my heritage and this parts of my heritage and this parts of my interest and this parts of my interest and put it all together into a story. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it kind of comes naturally, I guess, for me. Yeah, I, I bet it would. <laughs> in a way, right? And and then at the same time, at the end of the day, I mean, the original scripts for some of the stories were so much more um, just, I don't know, too complex. And it's been a process of like simplifying them. And I think, but I, and, and sometimes I was really... Has a piss that I had to take out certain parts, and I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> this is the core." But honestly, after having all that, like, especially editing work, you could say, I think I've I've managed to boil down every story to like something actually very simple, but at the same time, something that travels better. I I think so. Instead of making something may, maybe very cultural specific, I think the exercise at the very end of the day is just like making something that's much more universal in, in a mm. way. And this has been published in several languages, right? Yeah, so it came out... Uh, well, the other thing is, like, the first draft of Urashimataru I wrote in... No, in Japanese, mm. because I was here and, you know, I was showing it to publishers here. Then, when they were like, no, we're we're not interested, then I was like, listen, I'm just going to write them all in the language that I feel the most comfortable in, and that's Spanish for me. And so the rest I wrote in Spanish. So... You know, it's Japanese legends written in Spanish, which sure, why not? But that also means that, you know, there's like a cultural small difference. I mean, if if you were to translate these legends into Japanese, like there are some very set ways each character would talk because they've always talked that way. Mm -hmm. And they're like these very Japanese ways of, of talking. So... Yeah, it's a mess. So for example, like, you know, it's it, in the States, it's out through Yen Press, who mainly publishes manga. But mm-hmm. but but if they were if they had to put it on a certain category, then it would have to be comics translated from Spanish, not Japanese. <laughs> Although my name is Japanese, so it's a mess, but you know, it, it is what it is. But yeah, so the first edition, I mean, so, sorry, coming back to your, your question, it, the first edition was a Spanish one, which is, I consider like the master version you could say then it's being out in english it's coming out in italy i think this month then bulgarian wow yeah and where else there must be a french version on the way right i don't have any news but i'm yet but i'm really praying i mean i really like this book to come out in france i think they would i hope they'll like it well, when Deb and I go to Angoulême, we'll put a good word in for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let me know. Like, <laughs> oh, I've, I've read this amazing book. You should totally buy it. Yeah, it, it's one that, I mean, I, I can totally see it in, in France where, you know, they have like big, this big like manga tradition, but, you know, they, their comics are very literary. 
So mm-hmm. I, I think it, and then they also like manga. So it might sit in a well, in a funny spot in between all of that, but it might resonate with people just because of that mm-hmm. too. I thought that's cool. You sound, you know, like with Urshinata and Crane Wife, there's definitely a it goes to the the story as you remember it, and then the ending at a certain point it wildly diverges. Um, with Ikisan, and it, and it's action packed, <laughs> whereas Ikisan as a story seemed a little quieter. Yeah, so I did Urashimataru and then Crane Wife, and then I was like, and I had a choice. I was like, I'm either gonna put these out as, as two separate books, or I'm gonna add a third story, and then make, because like a, a a collection of short stories or anthology or whatever with two stories sounds like funny. It's like it's either one or three somehow. I don't know in my head. Okay. So I was like, I I think I I would like to have one more, and I was like, again, like going back to there are many other legends that have to do with like taboo, and I developed a couple of them that were pretty long. But I was like, I think like if if I had like another long, exhausting one, it's just gonna be too much to read in one sitting somehow. Mm. And I was like, maybe what I need is something actually comical and very tiny. <laughs> Which is, you know, what Ikisan served for. And then the reason why I put it in the middle is like, it's a good, like, palette cleanser. Yes. <laughs> cleanser <laughs> that it is. <laughs> somehow. But then, but then if you want to, like, justify, like, in a more intellectual way, it's just by chance. But, like, even in, for example, in Kabuki theater, you will have, like, in between two big dramatic pieces, you will have, like, a small comical one. And that's also the same for Spanish theater and probably many theater. It's like just like humans. It's like you cannot bear, you know, three dramatic stories. You want to want to have like a, some pause in the middle. Mm. So it's something that's been in theater and many other forms for a long time. And I was like, what if I put it in the middle? And it just, to me, worked really well. So it's more, like I said, it's more like as if you were, went to a theater, you watch like one play, you have a comical relief, and then you went back to like for a second serving of, you know, more comical stories. Got it, got it. Oh, sorry, dramatic stories. <laughs> <but, yeah. laughs> you have a personal favorite of the three? Uh, that any any stuff that right. resonate really strongly with you or you learned something along the way doing it? I... Hmm. For, for example, like Urashimataro, because I did develop through uh, the like civil Guarnaccia workshop, you know, one of the things we were working on, he was like, so what are your strengths? What, what are you good at? What can you add to the mix that people would like? And I was like, oh, maybe I would like to have like under, under scenes under the sea and people like flying and everything. I mean, the, the funny thing is like, there's like, book process has kind of like mm, so for a long while and i still like love him to that like i love like tayo matsumoto's work it's mm. incredible but during this comic kind of like reminded me how much i love Hayao miyazaki's work mm. which is like i i really grew up with his movies we got some like vhs tapes from my relatives in japan and i which were naushika and laputa and I, me and my sister have been watching that since we were like kids. It's part of my mm-hmm. DNA. But I had kind of like forgotten it somehow. And during these stories, I was like, yeah, I would like to have the, the scene or whatever. And it kind of like drew me back to like the, that like pure joy that you have when you watch his movies, where, which are like narratively very proficient. And at the same time, they're visually, there's so much to enjoy visually. And I was like, yeah. why could I not enjoy 
my you know myself the act of drawing and making beautiful pictures so Urashimataro that's one where I kind of worked on that actually I was like what can I do that you know could be fun to watch to look at and then for the crane wife especially the second I mean the first half is very restrained it's very realistic in a way and then the second part where it goes more kaiju I was like again like how much fun can I have drawing <laughs> and I was like just go and just go for it just go go, go have fun like the story said the stakes are good it's going to be understandable so then enjoy yourself like mm-hmm. it's like a musician they give you a guitar and it's like go go jam go have fun the main melody is being taken care of you, you know the Urashimataro I like because of the that more like naive nature of the story and the more cartoony aspect but somehow the that restraint which ends up with like a big explosion of like the crane wife i i love and i'm you know the the new things i'm working on i'm really hoping to be able to at least continue a little bit like what i think i found there that you know which is basically having a story that i mean be able to find a vehicle for a story i would like to tell but at the same time find enjoyment in there for me to just like yeah just have fun which i think you know i hope that maybe readers you know will will enjoy to it somehow on the other end so which is a, a stupid say of saying maybe both but uh, <laughs> yeah like i said like with Ashimata, i think i went in with a more naive mm-hmm. approach and then the crane wife was a more mature more reflective way of looking at those stories so you mentioned that you're working on something now, something different. Could you share a little bit about what you're working on now? Sure. So I have, um, let me see, at least two things, I think. One of them, we've, I've already talked about this elsewhere, but like, so I've already finished drawing a graphic novel with Joe Kelly, oh, wow. with whom I did, I Get Giants. We've been, it just happened to be developed at the same time as the pandemic. So we had a lot of time to work on it <laughs> and it's mm. done. So it's a 300 something page long book. Now it's up to the adults to like do their adult thing of like talking to publishers and things, but that's mm. finished. Wow. We'll do like a podcast if you want to, like when it comes out, because like the way we've worked on that one, it's been very particular. I'm also working on, a, I don't know how much I can say it hasn't been announced yet, but it, so I'm doing something for a big publisher. That's all I'm going to say. It's coming out this year. Wow. And it hasn't been announced. It's going to be maybe unexpected compared to what I've done so far, but I think it's going to make a lot of sense when you see it happen. <laughs> it's very exciting. We should also mention that you've just started recoloring your story, Umami, and it's running on Panel Syndicate right now, and that's sort of like a re-release? Uh, yeah, so we just did like the color version of the first chapter. Oh, so okay. far, which is available on my social network, so like Twitter and Instagram. So the whole comic we've done so far, it's available, as you say, like through Panel Syndicate for free, for free or mm-hmm. something, whatever people are, are willing to donate. And then, yeah, you have some extra small things like such as like coloring on my on my social network. Well, that's great. Ken, thanks so much for spending time with us today. We're going to do a little bit of a follow-up interview that's going to run alongside your uh, story that's running on Mog Explaining Extra. It's going to be a free story for everybody, so you can check it out. And yeah, thanks so much for, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. You know, hoping to see you guys soon in person. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.